I'm Cal Newport, and this is a Deep Questions Listener Calls mini-episode. The format of these mini-episodes is that I take voice questions from you, the listeners, about any of the topics we like to talk about on this show. Go to calnewport.com slash podcast to learn more about how you can submit your own voice questions for these listener calls mini-episodes. No quick announcements today. We do have a good show. I'm looking at my script here. We have questions over a variety of our classic topics. We're going to get into notebooks. We're going to get into time block planners. We're going to get into artists using Instagram and whether they're using it too much and the perennial question of how much deep work is too much deep work. So I'm excited to dive into these listener calls. Before we get started, of course, let's first say thanks to one of the sponsors that makes this show possible. And I'm talking about the longtime friend of the show, Magic Spoon. You have heard me say this many times before. It is one of my fonder memories of childhood is eating those ridiculous treat cereals that they used to push on us in the 1980s. Now that I'm an adult, it feels like I cannot have those escapes anymore, except Magic Spoon has come along and solved that problem. They offer delicious cereals that also happen to be zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, only four net grams of carbs in each serving, and only 140 calories in each serving. This is cereal that is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. I can assure you that those cereals we ate in the 1980s were none of those things, I wouldn't even be sure that those cereals from the 1980s were even deadly radiation-free. I think they just threw whatever they could in there that thought they might appeal to kids. So we've made a lot of progress. All right, so here's exciting news. Magic Spoon is now relaunching blueberry flavor. This was one of the favorite flavors they had before. It sold out. They now have more back in stock. You can also build your own combo boxes, of course. You can build your combo boxes from their now standard flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and the two new ones that just got added to the regular rotation, peanut butter and cinnamon. They're also shipping to Canada now as well. So go to magicspoon.com slash cal to grab some blueberry or to build a custom bundle of cereal to try today. Use that promo code cal, C-A-L, at checkout and you will save $5 off your order. This offer is good here in the U.S. and Canada but you have to use that code at checkout. Of course, if there's anything you don't like, Magic Spoon has a 100% happiness guarantee. Money back, no questions asked. Remember, get that next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash cal and use that code cal at checkout to save $5. And with that, let's get started with the show. Our first question is a common one. The game of asking, is this deep work? Hey Carl, in my job as a fire engineer, I often have to switch between tasks like um, writing concepts or reports and uh, looking up uh, specifications in building codes or technical reference guides. So my question is plainly, is this still deep work? Because like not uh, everyone can do it and they have to concentrate. But I also uh, have those task switches, so uh, just kind of interesting to me. Thanks for all you're doing. Bye. Well, I'm not sure that this question is actually really that relevant. Whether or not we assess a particular activity to be specifically deep or not quite deep 
this is not too useful. The, the way I think about this now is that what we want to avoid as humans trying to apply our brain to produce value, so to do cognitive value production, is we want to avoid context switching. So how do we avoid context switching? Well, we're sequential. If we can do one thing until we reach a stopping point and stop and move on to the next, that's more or less an ideal way to use the brain. This is the standard I give in my new book, A World Without Email, for what we should be looking for regardless of what the job is. What we don't want to do is be in the middle of working on one thing, having to keep context shifting, let's say to check a conversation on Slack, or you're waiting for an email message to come in that you need to respond to, or you're jumping over to social media for a little bit of distraction. Our brain is not good at that. We can't do these things in parallel. We want to just give something its full attention until we move on to something else. Now, different types of things will require different amounts of time before you switch to something else. Different types of efforts will require different levels of concentration before we switch to something else. But that will just naturally shake itself out if you are approaching your work with this mindset of one thing at a time before switching to the next, never context switch in the middle of a task. So if what you're doing is a lot of, let's say, small work, I'm checking this route plan. Then I have to jump over here and set up a meeting. Then I have to go over here and write a quick report about X, right? You know, maybe some of these things are real quick, 10 minutes to do this, 15 minutes to do this. And you feel like, well, I'm switching context a lot, but that's fine. You're switching context after a terminal point in an effort before moving on to the next. And that's about the best we can do. And then maybe you get to a much more complicated task that now takes you 90 minutes before you switch on to something else. And that's going to naturally become a deeper task because you're giving something un undistracted focus. But I would not worry so much, in other words, about whether this is particularly deep or not, or if there's some arbitrary threshold that makes it deep or not. The thing you should be caring about is sequential work or par parallel work. Sequential work is, again, one thing at a time till you reach a natural breaking point before you switch to anything else. That should be your pattern, regardless of how long these tasks actually take. It's a much more human way to actually get things done. Continuing briefly here with the theme of deep work, let's tackle a, another perennial question about this topic, which is how much deep work is too much deep work? Hi, Cal. I'm a lawyer in Darwin in Australia, and I also lecture in a law subject at our local university. I'm curious about how much is enough when it comes to deep work during any given day. I have this aspiration in my head that I want to be able to do a good two-hour deep work session in the morning on a client file and then do another session in the afternoon followed by a session in the evening where I can work on my research and my teaching for my university subject. As I'm sure you can probably guess, I don't ever achieve that. Um, I tend to be absolutely exhausted by the time I get home and then I don't have anything left in the tank for my research and my teaching. I'm wondering, what do you think is enough when it comes to deep work in any given day? What's realistic and what's achievable? I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Well, certainly what you're trying to do here, which if I'm doing my math right, adds up to six hours of deep work every day. When you have other cognitive demands, such as the frenetic context shifting required to do the rest of your job as a lawyer, the client calls, the emails, the meetings, that is a lot to ask of your brain. So I'm not surprised that you're having a hard time hitting those hours. I mean, typically where you see something like six hours of deep work in a day, you're going to be talking about people who are doing only the deep work. We're talking about literary fiction writers whose whole day is built around going to a scenic cabin and sitting there with their typewriter trying to write the great American novel. 
it's much harder when you're trying to interleave such large amounts of concentration into another type of day job. Now, is it impossible? Not, not necessarily impossible. There are exceptions. The exception that comes to mind here is Walter Isaacson. Years ago, I went down a Walter Isaacson rabbit hole. I was curious about his writing habits because this is someone who has had very demanding day jobs. He was the president, I believe, of CNN. He then went on to run the Aspen Institute after that. That was actually his sort of semi-retirement relaxed job compared to what he was doing when he was at Time Warner Media. And he still wrote these best-selling books. That's when he wrote his Ben Franklin biography. That's when he wrote his Einstein biography. Now he has a full-time professorship appointment at Tulane, and he has a lot more freedom to write. But he wrote a lot of his breakout books while having a very busy job. So how did he do that? Well, the way he described it is he doesn't watch TV. So he would have the hard day of work. He would come home, you know, have dinner with his wife or what have you. And then at night where people would normally watch TV, he would just write for two hours. And he got used to that. Now, I think a lot of this was after his kids were older and he just saw this as downtime and he wasn't into entertaining himself otherwise. He said, I might as well just write. So I think it's possible. It's possible to, if there's a very specific nature of this secondary deep work, like his writing and you get into a rhythm of it and you have a ritual of it and you have some separation between your other job and this work and you don't have too many childcare demands or other things going on, it is possible to have this second shift of deep work. People have certainly done it. Other writers have done this too in the mornings. I've talked before about John Grisham. I've talked before about Clive Cussler. They were, uh, they were people who found time to write Outside of a very busy normal schedule, Grisham would do it early in the morning. He would do it at 5 a.m. Custler would do it late at night after his kids went to bed because his wife worked a night shift. So Custler was just with the, the kids in the in the afternoon and the evenings. And after they were in bed, he was bored because she was working and he started writing his adventure novel. So again, I've seen this work. I've seen this second shift of deep work work, but I think it has to be really ritualized and prescribed and something that you actually extract value out of and that usually happens after you've had some time to relax and be with your family. So it's possible if the conditions are right. But I want to underscore that it is difficult so that you shouldn't be feeling bad that you're not just easily throwing in hours five and six of deep work after a long day at a law job that includes a lot of deep work. You should not feel bad about that. What you're trying to do here is very hard. It might not be possible in your circumstance. If it is possible, that's going to be probably what a success in this scenario would look like. Something like eight o'clock to 10 o'clock, I go to my writing corner and overlook this moon from the window and have like this cup of herbal tea and just have this whole routine built around that you're going to have to throw a lot at it to make that work. All right, let's shift topics here and do a couple questions about notes. Hey, Cal, I really like your time block planner. I'm a few weeks into it. Just a quick question to help straighten me out. Do you take notes on the planner? You also mentioned your working memory text file and that you use Evernote. So just typically I use Evernote to capture as, many, as, as much of my notes as possible. Um, and then I will jot notes in um, your planner. Uh, but then I'm just sort of curious about why would you use a text file instead of Evernote or just use your Timebox planner? And so if you can help just orient me on the general purpose of those three tools, uh, that would be helpful. All right, this is a good question. Let's disentangle or disambiguate, I guess I should say, the capture notes column in the time block planner 
from the working memory.txt text file on my computer I use to help organize myself and tools like Evernote or Rome where you might also keep notes. How are these three things different? All right, let's start with the time block planner. And of course, as I always say, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to timeblockplanner.com. There's a video there that explains time blocking and what this planner does so you can get up to speed about what we're talking about here. Every day when you're using a time block planner, you have what we call the daily pages. So you open up the planner. On the right side is the, the time block grid. That's where you actually make your time block plans. And on the left side, there's a space for metrics, but below it, there's we call them the, the capture columns. There's one for notes. There's one for ideas. The main thing those are used for is when a an idea, a note, a task, you know, remember to check in with Stephanie about this issue. I wonder if we can switch over to StreamYard instead of Zoom for our broadcast. You have an idea when you're working on something else. So you're working on a block on your time block planner. You have an idea or a task or a reminder or a question. Or maybe you just, you, you remember like I need to reschedule an appointment or something. You don't want to keep track of this just in your mind because we've learned from David Allen that's an open loop. It's going to use up cognitive resources, right? It's going to distract you. So you don't want to try to keep track of this in your mind, but you also don't want to necessarily abort what you're doing and go over into some other system and deal with this thing because that's going to be a big context shift. So what you do is you jot it down in those capture pages. You jot it right down there in the column next to your time block plan. It's analog. So even if you're nowhere near your computer, so you're out doing productive meditation, trying to solve a proof in the woods, you have your analog planner, boom, you write it down. You release then this thing, whatever it is you wrote down, you can release it from your mind because those capture columns are right there below your schedule shutdown complete checkbox. You're not going to check that schedule shutdown complete checkbox at the end of your day until you have processed everything out of those columns. So you, you can have confidence. I'm going to have to face these things black and white before my day in, so I won't forget them. They won't be forgotten. I don't have to expend mental resources on them now. At the very least, by the time I get to the shutdown, I'm going to have to take those and add them to more permanent to-do list or on the calendar or figure them out. All right, so that's what those pages are for. Workingmemory.txt. What that is for is to specifically augment your working memory when you're working on a particular thing on your computer. So for me, typically this will show up, for example, when I'm trying to clear my inbox. I'm going through emails. A lot of things pop up that I can't just deal with right away, or I want to get through a bunch of messages and then kind of order these things. I don't want to keep track of all these things in my head. So I, I literally just have this text file open next to Gmail. And I'm just throwing stuff in there. Another example, when I'm working on our, our family's budget, I do our budget once a month. I have the different bank websites open and, and I have just this blank text file, my working text.txt and you know, I'm capturing everything. Like, well, here's what our credit card bill is and here's what the current balance is. Oh, don't forget the, don't forget that we have this check coming in. I'm just, it's, it's like your brain is being expanded aimed at the particular thing you're doing. You are augmenting your brain digitally for a specific task for which in front of you, for which that helps. I'm working on a podcast, same type of thing. I'm writing notes when I'm trying to figure out my weekly plan. I'm throwing ideas in there of things that I, I want to put in the weekly plan because I can't keep track of them all in my head. And then I can start reordering them and moving them. And then finally I build my plan and I can erase the text file, right? So think about workingmemory.txt, this text file, as a extension of your working memory that you use as you're specifically working on one particular project objective or task that is aided by having this extra storage space for you to capture and move things around. 
Then we have long-term note-taking systems like Evernote or like Rome, for example. And this is for actually capturing notes that you want to maintain long-term. So, you know, I'm working on a new article idea and I have notes and interviews and articles I found that are relevant to the article I'm writing. I'll add that to a Rome page or if I'm using Evernote for this, I'll add it to an Evernote notebook because I want it to permanently capture this note to ref reference later at some in indeterminate time. This is very different than working memory.txt where you're just in the moment augmenting your working memory to try to get something done. I don't need my notes from cleaning the inbox this morning. They're not notes. It was just me capturing stuff to help me get through that. I don't need my notes from doing the budget. I was just using that to, to keep numbers that I don't want to keep track of in my head temporarily. And of course, the pages in your time block planner is temporary in the sense of, okay, I don't want to deal with this now, but I'm going to deal with it at some point today. I need a place to write it where I won't forget it. And so that's not permanent either. All right, so hopefully that makes sense. So the capture pages versus working memory.txt versus long-term storage like Rome or like Evernote, they're all doing different things in the universe of information capture and organization. All right, well, in the spirit of note-related questions, let's do one more quick one on that topic. Hey, Cal, been a fan for a while, really enjoying the podcast. My question to you is how many notebooks do you use on a regular basis and how do you carry these around or keep track of them? I'm just thinking you would have, say, your research journal, if you're still using that. You've got your uh, your notebook for your time blocking, maybe something for uh, immediate capture, something to, say, track workouts, uh, something for longer journaling. Uh, so I'm really looking to get your thoughts on the balance between the, the right number of notebooks and then also maybe um, when to use pen and paper for all these sorts of capture activities versus something like Evernote. Thanks. But All right. Well, when it comes to analog notebooks, there are three main types of analog notebooks I have. Of course, my time block planner. Now, it's not really a notebook, but it is paper, and it's where I do my daily time block plans. It's where I track my metrics at the end of each day. It also has those capture columns we talked about in the last question, where I can put down notes or obligations or tasks that pop up during a block that I don't want to deal with right then. For working on theoretical computer science proofs, I use spiral-bound grid notebooks, various brands I've used. Uh, that's what I use when I want to take notes on proofs or paper ideas. If I'm on the move, I do a lot of this work, of course, outside while I'm walking. And so these notebooks are how I capture those thoughts. I also have a moleskin. I've always carried a moleskin. I think of that as where I capture thoughts relevant to either my values or strategic plans. Strategic plans, of course, be my name for my quarterly semester plans, but the sort of big picture vision of here's what I'm trying to do in my life. Here's what I'm working on right now. I like to have a dedicated notebook for that type of big picture thinking. Since 2004, I've been using a moleskin for that purpose. So I still keep that notebook usually in my bag. So it is more or less with me. Digitally, I maintain some sort of digital system for keeping notes on my books or my non-academic articles. That has traditionally been Evernote for me. I have been experimenting more recently with Rome, Rome Research Product, and I'm trying to see how I like that on for size. This it has more of this sort of bi-directional semantic net style linking. But you know, I have a digital home that can handle a large amount of notes. 
if I'm working on an article or a book, there might be a couple hundred different items and thoughts and notes that all need to be collected. So I need a pretty heavy duty digital tool for that. For research, as I've talked about before, a lot of the places where I'm going to make a, a lot of the, the place where I'm going to make a lot of my more permanent repository of proof ideas or half done proofs or ideas for academic papers, I use Overleaf. This is a very specific tool towards people who do research and write papers that include mathematical notation. It's, it's basically a way to write up mathematical notation and share those documents with other people. So me and my collaborators will set up Overleaf projects for every paper we're working on. Ultimately, that's where ideas from my grid notebook will get transformed into formally marked up mathematical notation. I can see if it works, it doesn't work, and I can accrete the notes there. So I guess that's five different notebooks spread between digital and analog that I rely on most regularly. I want to take a brief moment to talk about one of our sponsors, ExpressVPN. Now on Monday's episode of the podcast, I gave a definition of what a VPN does and why you might need one. ExpressVPN is my favorite because they're fast and they have a ton of VPN server options you can connect to. Now, one of the things they have been emphasizing recently that is that a cool feature of using ExpressVPN is that you can use it to get around territorial controls on content coming from streaming networks. Netflix, for example, hides thousands of shows from you based on your location. Using ExpressVPN, you can get to those shows. How do you do it? You simply choose a server in the location where you want to see that location shows. You connect through that server to Netflix. Netflix thinks you're in that location. Boom, you see those shows. So uh, if you're interested in Netflix Japan shows, connect to a server in Japan. Interested in Netflix UK shows, connect to a server in UK. Overseas, and you want to watch some of the US shows that aren't available overseas, this is something I have specifically done before with ExpressVPN. Connect back to a server in the US, get access to those US shows. This is just one of many reasons why you might want to use a VPN, but just gives you an example of why these are useful. And once you're on board with the idea of using a VPN, you're not going to do better than ExpressVPN. So be smart, stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content and get your money's worth at expressvpn.com deep. Don't forget to use my link so you can get three extra months free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash deep expressvpn.com slash deep to learn more. I also want to talk about our good friends at optimize. Now, often people use that phrase in an informal manner. When they say our good friends, they mean a company with which we have some relationships. In this case, the founder and mad monastic monk CEO of optimize Brian Johnson is a good and longtime friend of mine. So I, I actually am using that phrase accurately here. Optimize is really one of the best ways you can use the internet to help cultivate a deeper life. It's a subscription service. You get access to Brian's Philosopher Notes, six-page brilliant summaries of over 600 of the most important nonfiction books ever written. You get a daily plus one video from Brian injecting wisdom straight into your metaphorical veins. You also get access to the 101 masterclasses, including... Digital Minimalism 101 taught by yours truly. You get this all for one low monthly fee. You can access it on the internet. You can access it on their custom smartphone app. So if you want to try out Optimize, go to optimize.me slash deep and use the coupon code deep to get a 14-day free trial. That's optimize.me 
slash deep. Start making your life deeper today. All right, back to the show. Let's do one more question here. This one comes from digital minimalism type topics. Hi, Cal. What advice do you have for someone who consumes more art on Instagram than creates? You see, I love to draw and I love the community of artists I find on Instagram. They inspire me. They motivate me to draw and even post my work. I even find 30-day challenges, Zoom class announcements, but I seem to overdose on Instagram. And I should know better because I read your books. I listen to the podcast. I've done digital detox. No social media on my phone. And I sign on and off with unmemorized passwords. But I still can't get out. I can't get in and out while making my art the priority. Instagram is exhausting and too much, too much of it seems to unmotivate, unmotivate me from making art. Thank you. This is an interesting question because in my public appearances or interviews or talks about my book, Digital Minimalism, I often use artist and Instagram as an example. And the reason I use them as an example is that my position is often strawmanned as social media is bad and no one should use it. And I say, no, that's not what digital minimalism says. It says you should be intentional about your tech use. Figure out what you want your life to look like. Find the best ways to use technology to amplify these things that you care about and then feel comfortable missing out on everything else. And I say, let me give you an example. I have encountered during my work, and this is true, a lot of artists like you who find great value in Instagram. So the thing that they value is creative inspiration, being exposed to the work of other artists in theirs or complementary medium. And that then gives grist for their creativity mill. Instagram is good for this because, as you note, a lot of artists will post their work or post works in progress on Instagram. And as I learned talking to artists, this is no small thing. Being exposed to a lot of cutting-edge work is really, really critical if you're going to be creative in a highly creative field like the visual arts. And it used to be, therefore, if you wanted to be a successful artist, you probably had to spend a non-trivial portion of your life in one of these small number of cities that had large art scenes. So you could go to galleries, go to studios, and be exposed to work. So if you didn't live in London, if you didn't live in New York, you were in trouble. Instagram democratized that because these same artists now will post works in progress on Instagram, and now I could live in Des Moines and still see cutting-edge innovative art and feed the creativity mill and produce more creative work on my own. So I, I used artist and Instagram as an example of when you know what you're all about, you could use social media that could be really valuable. So for me, I have no need for Instagram. For an artist, they might have a big need for Instagram. So that was a standard talking point in my talk. So it's Interesting slash not surprising to hear that you are an artist who finds some inspiration out of Instagram. I think the only problem here is what you're missing, what you're missing is the optimization step. I talked about this in digital minimalism. The reason why it's so powerful to know why you're using technology, not just because it takes off the plate tech that you don't need to be using, but because when you have a reason for the tech you are using, it is much easier to optimize the tech use. And by optimize, I mean set up your rules in such a way that you are maximizing the value that you've now identified and avoiding the stuff that doesn't add to that value. It is very hard to optimize your use of a tool if you don't know why you're using it. 
You say, I'm on Facebook because everyone is. And now you say, oh, I want to optimize how I use it. It's really hard to do. I mean, you might say things like, well, I should just use it less or maybe not log in too much or just not use it too much before bed. But these all seem like arbitrary rules and they are, and your mind knows this and they tend to be not so successful. But if you know exactly why you're using a tool, if you're an artist and you say, I want to be exposed to cutting edge work from people in my medium, now it's really much easier to put sensical rules around how you use these tools. You might say like you did, well, I don't need this on my phone, right? This is not a source. I'm not using this as a source of distraction when I'm bored. So I don't need it on my phone. I'll just put it on my computer. If the main reason I'm following different people is to see art, well, why don't I curate this down to 10 artists whose work really inspires me? Or maybe I do five artists and five that I rotate and I rotate once a month and I do it on the first Sunday of the month. And now that I know that I just need to get inspiration, well, honestly, once a week is enough. They only post so much information. I can see all of the new artworks in progress that my 10 artists I follow post. I can see that all in about 15 minutes. So why don't I do that Tuesday night? I log onto my computer. I look at what they put put on there. And then maybe build a ritual around it. You're like, yeah, I want it to be inspiring. So like I put on some music. I I load up the my Instagram feed that just has 10 artists I follow. I have a nice glass of wine. I, I look at the artwork and then I go to my studio and think, or I go for a long walk after that and come back and take notes on my sketchbooks. And it's just part of a very intentional, positive routine. Now, that particular routine I just described there was a case study, but there's a general attribute that I want you to consider here, which is that it's rules around how you use a tool that are not stated or designed from the perspective of constraining negativity. They are built instead to optimize or amplify something positive. We're much more likely to stick with and have therefore a healthier relationship with a tool when we have embedded it into a very positive and specific ritual. So let's say you do that ritual I just described and it's the Tuesday night thing and it's the music and it's the wine and you look at the 10 artists and you do it on your computer and then you go for a walk and then maybe outside on your back porch, you work in your sketch pad for 30 minutes. And it's this whole thing is a very positive ritual. And it extracts a ton of value out of Instagram because seeing that new artwork is the spark that makes the creative fire that you kindle each Tuesday night makes it actually catch, makes it actually bright. But now that you have this clear system or ritual around how you use it, it's much easier than to just commit to, well, that's how I use Instagram. So when it's another time, you don't log in because it's not Tuesday night. And when it's Sunday morning, you don't log in because you say, well, what does this have to do with my create a fire ritual on Tuesday night? When it's you're bored and it's Saturday and you're watching TV, you don't log in because they say, no, no, I, I have my ritual for when I use Instagram and I'm happy with it. And it'd be a notable transgression to, to, to on the fly, create a new ritual to use it. I, that's something I'd want to give more thought. And you would be surprised how much easier it is to stay consistent with a tool when, again, you've embedded it in a very specific ritual and you can change that ritual, but you're not going to just casually use that tool outside of the ritual. So that's what I'm going to suggest here is you need to get more specific about exactly in what positive way do you want to use Instagram to really get a big hit of value out of it. And once you've identified that, build a whole routine around it or a whole ritual around it that's very positive and then make that be the answer of how you use Instagram. The only thing you have to commit to is, do you believe that your Instagram use should be enmeshed in thoughtful rituals or not? And if the answer is yes, then you don't use it other times. And that's a much easier commitment than just, I'm an artist. It's okay for me to use Instagram. Do I want to use Instagram right now? I probably shouldn't. Maybe I will. You don't want to have that debate every five minutes. So have that clarity. 
I want to embed this in positive rituals. Here are my current positive rituals. I'm happy to change them, but that takes some time. And for now, this is when I use it. This more generally, I hope people can apply, whether you are an artist or not, whether we're talking about Instagram or not, put tech to use for specific positive reasons. Commit that these pre-thought through reasons will prescribe how your tech use happens and that it's good that it happens this way because you're getting value. And then if you're not in one of these pre-prescribed positive uses already thought through, then you just, your default is I'm not using tech. That is digital minimalism 101. And it works much better than I should probably try to use this less or here's my list of hacks that I'm going to try to deploy to cut down my phone use. I don't need 20 tips to have a better relationship with your phone. What you need is a better relationship with yourself and what you're trying to do in life. Then take tech on a long for that ride. Well, I can hear the music start to play at the Republic restaurant below. That means it's getting towards happy hour time for the restaurant and therefore time for me to wrap up this episode. Thank you, everyone, who submitted their questions. Go to calnewport.com slash podcast to find out how you, too, can submit your queries for the podcast. I will be back on Monday, hopefully well-rested from my vacation for the next full-length episode of the Deep Questions podcast. And until then, as always, stay deep. <laughs>